Great to be with you here this morning. I was here in 2018, so four years ago. And uh, boy, hasn't that time gone so quickly. And in 2016 as well. And the convention had invited another speaker and at the last minute he couldn't attend. So they rang me up and said, Neil, any chance you could come up? I said, absolutely. Oh, who wouldn't want to be at Atherton at Easter time, for sure. So here I am. And I was thinking, reflecting this morning, I've known Pastor John for 45 years. Wow. Wow, amazing. And the thing that stands out to me about Pastor John is his servant heart. He is just a servant right there. My earliest memory of him is that uh, John bought a little minivan and uh, we all lived in around the same suburb in Brighton in Brisbane and John would go around and pick us all up in the morning and that would take a bit of effort. I think it was about five or six of us and then drive into the city and uh, park the minivan there and go to work and then we were all to meet a particular place in the city and then he would bring us and drop us all back home again. And the reason for doing that the reason for hopping on the minivan and not public transport is because petrol had gone up to 25 cents a litre. <laughs> and John said, I'm not paying, I, you know. He said, I'm not paying for public transport. He said, uh, as soon as it goes up to 30 cents, you'll be back on the train, guys. And, uh, oh, jeez, there you go. Now, I have one little request is I need to get to the school after here for their first session. Not that I'm speaking, Gary's speaking first session this morning at 11 o'clock. Does anybody have a spare seat that they could... Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, okay, all right. Well, I better go with just one. Thank you. Otherwise, you're all right, wonderful. Thank you very much. That'd be great. I was willing to walk. I said, yeah, I can walk. And they said, no, 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 I'm sure somebody here at the church will be able to give you a lift. So that'd be great. Thank you. Okay, on this Good Friday, we're going to look at Matthew 26, verses 57 to 75. Matthew 26, 57 to 75. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, in whose house the scribes and the elders had gathered. But Peter was following him at a distance and as far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards in order to see how this would end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But Jesus was silent. Then the high priest said to him, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? They answered, He deserves death. And then they spat in his face and struck him and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Messiah, 
Who is it that struck you? Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, You, you also are with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know where what you are talking about. When he went out to the porch, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to him, said to Peter, Certainly you are also one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to curse and he swore an oath. I do not know the man. At that moment, the cock crowed. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said. Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Father, we just come to this portion of scripture on this very, very significant day in our calendar. This weekend, Lord, we remember the Lord Jesus Christ given for us his uh, terrible, terrible death on the cross. And all because of your love and his love for us. So, Father, we would ask that you would now minister into our hearts. Some of us know this story so well. We've known it for many, many years. So, we would ask that you might bring a freshness to it today. That we would leave here changed by your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Australians uphold the values of being treated fairly and people being treated justly. Our heart goes out to the marginalised, asylum seekers, refugees, those who, for whatever reason, suffer in a way that maybe we will never experience. It's true on the other side also that we don't like people who are treated with something that's over and above what everyone else is expected. Football players, music artists, even if you're the world number one tennis player, you've got to obey by the rules, don't you? This is what it is. Unfair advantage otherwise. I'm sure each of us have had stories in our own lives when we have experienced injustice injustice. Something's occurred to us and we've said, that's not fair. That's just not fair. Sometimes you just suck it up, don't you? And other times you stand up and say, no, I need to deal with this. I had some ministry to do with in Mackay and was going to be there for three or four days and then needed to travel to Townsville and needed some ministry, organising ministry there and accreditation with the Bible school where I was at. And so I decided to hire a car. It seemed the most you know, best thing to do. Hire a car in Mackay, drive up to Townsville, stay there a few days, drop off the hire car at the airport and drive back to Sydney. Well, it was all good, all good, all worked well. Got to the airport at Townsville, it was about 10 o'clock in the morning, but nobody was at the desk, at the hire car desk. I thought, this is strange, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. Drop the keys in the little hole, and they go right down there, and then opened up the documentation to discover, I need to record the odometer. 
how's that going to happen? The keys, I can't reach my arm down to get the keys and go back and check what the odometer is on the car. So I thought, look, they'll do the fair thing, won't they? They'll be fair and just by me. I'll just leave it blank. And the plane is soon about to leave. I have to hop on the plane. It was about two or three weeks later, my accounts manager, she received the invoice from the hire car company and she said, Neil, it's quite an exorbitant amount. What car did you hire? I said, that was just a little Toyota Corolla. When we had a look, they'd said that I'd travelled in seven days between Mackay and Townsville, 3,000 kilometres. Did I go via Charleville or something? I don't know. So I said, well, that's not right. It should be, I don't know, 300. So I rang up the hire car company and I said, look, this is the story. I dropped the keys in the bucket there. Well, it wasn't able to put down the odometer reading. I said, I can get you a stacked deck from the people I stayed with in Mackay and the people I stayed with in Townsville to say that I just stayed with them. Oh, it's our error, our error. They made the big adjustment and the, you know, the amount was reduced a lot, fortunately. Fortunately, my accounts manager brought it to my attention. I said, thank you, you just didn't pay it. That would have been unfair. We come to the trial of Jesus before Caiaphas and it was anything but a fair legal trial. Apart from Jesus, there's two characters, two main characters in this passage that I read and they couldn't be two more extreme. There's one who's the president of the Sanhedrin, religious leader, spiritual guru as the people would have thought of him of the day and people looked up to him for their spiritual knowledge and understanding And then the other person, a simple uh, Galilean fisherman, poor and really had no influence over the people at all. And yet both these two men were united in showing no support toward Jesus. Like every organisation, the Sanhedrin had developed their own laws and regulations about how trials were to be conducted. And as we'll see this morning, over and over again, their own laws, their own rules were broken in this trial. Straight away, the setting for the passage shows the illegality of the trial. The Sanhedrin had declared themselves the trials were only to be conducted in the hall of judgment in the inner court of the temple. Yet here we read, it was conducted in the courtyard of Caiaphas. The Sanhedrin consisted of 71 members. 24 seats were assigned to the chief priests who were the Sadducees. 24 seats to assigned to the elders who were Pharisees, 22 seats assigned to scribes who are also Pharisees. And the big kahuna, the big one up the top, is the high priest who was also a Sadducee. So the Pharisees outnumbered the Sadducees in the Sanhedrin. When it came to a trial, not all 71 were required to be present for a capital punishment. They had declared themselves a minimum of 23 23 needed to be present. And they'd said that a person on the sentence under, under the sentence of death was to be informed that they were liable to the death sentence and how they were to be executed. 
Failing to let the person know meant that the person could not be executed. If only the minimum number of 23 attended this trial, they themselves, the Sanhedrin, had said 11 votes were sufficient for an acquittal, 13 were required for a conviction. Just as the minimum of two witnesses needed to be brought together to bring a charge, so there needed to be a majority of two to bring a a decision of guilt. Scripture doesn't tell us how many members of the Sanhedrin were present during this trial, but we know at least two were missing. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus we can get from the passage that the religious leaders wanted this trial to be over and done with quickly. And so they sought out false witnesses. Again, this was illegal. The defence was to have the first word before the, pro- before the prosecution could present the accusations. It shows that the Sanhedrin were not organised. This had been hastily put together and the trial had been taken place uh, was taking place at night mark 14:55 says that the whole council sought to bring a, tra- a charge against jesus now that was illegal they themselves had said all could argue in favor of an acquittal however not all could argue in favour of guilt or a conviction. One by one, the religious leaders presented false witnesses to this trial and none was found to be in agreement. Jesus should have been released. Again, this shows the lack of organisation by the Sanhedrin. Finally, after some time, two were found who were in agreement in some part, and they were presented before this court. But when presented, they were found to disagree also. One said that he'd heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another that is not made with hands. The other witness said this, that Jesus said, had said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, which one was correct? Did Jesus say, I will destroy the temple, or did Jesus say, I am able to destroy the temple? See, the first one is a statement of intention. I will do it. The second one is a statement of ability. I am able to do it. Because of this discrepancy in the two statements, Jesus should have been released. The Sanhedrin did not release Jesus and made this trial again illegal. For they themselves had declared when witnesses are brought together, they must agree in every detail. Jesus could not be charged with bringing disrespect on the temple. Under Roman law at the time, the Sanhedrin lacked the authority to put anyone to death except if it could be proved that they had shown disrespect to the temple. 
If this could be proved, then the Sanhedrin had the authority to execute that person. However, two witnesses could not be found to be in total agreement that Jesus had said these very words. Now, it's late in the night, and I imagine Caiaphas is frustrated. He just wants to get to bed. And all this is happening on his watch and in his own court. So what does he do? Scripture says he stood up and he commanded, commanded Jesus. Of the two charges brought against you, which one is correct? The intent to destroy the temple or the ability to destroy the temple? Now this too was illegal. The accused was not allowed to testify against himself. Jesus said nothing. And legally, he was not obliged to do so. Well, imagine Caiaphas, he's getting even more frustrated now. Here the man is in front of him and he won't even speak. So he charged Jesus under oath. I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, Caiaphas obviously knew that Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God and he knew that the Messiah was supposed to be the Son of God and in Mark's account of what we've read, Mark's account in 1461, he asked Jesus this question, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And blessed is another term for the name of God being placed under oath in a civil court, the person must answer. And Jesus does. In Mark 14, 62, he says the words, I am. Meaning, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. And someday Caiaphas would know this, For from now on, he says, Jesus, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the word power was also another name for God. Jesus was saying to Caiaphas, even those in hell will see the Son of Man when he returns on the clouds of heaven. Upon hearing this, the high priest tore his clothes. Again, he was illegal. He wasn't allowed to do this. He was forbidden to tear his clothes. Even when his wife had died, the Sanhedrin declared the high priest must not tear his clothes over the death, the grief of his wife. This too shows how strict the law was in the tearing of the clothes. Those present would have been absolutely shocked to see the high priest do that. For he believed that he had heard Jesus, he had heard God being cursed. But Jesus hadn't blasphemed God. He'd never said the name of God. He only said, I am. I am. Caiaphas, now wanting the rest of the council's attention to be taken away from his own action and onto the words of Jesus, brings the charge of blasphemy. 
Remember we had it read, Matthew 26, 65. He has blasphemed. That too was illegal. Judges were not allowed to initiate charges, only investigate them. And the accusation of blasphemy was only valid if the name of God had been pronounced. Jesus hadn't done that. Caiaphas went further. Why do we still need witnesses? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Well, that was illegal. The testimony of the two witnesses that had been brought in were not in total agreement and a person was not allowed to be convicted on his own words alone. Those present announced Jesus guilty. There's two. That was illegal. A guilty verdict was not to be pronounced at night, only during the day. Blasphemy was a capital offence. In their own laws, the Sanhedrin stated this, in the case of capital punishment, the trial and guilty verdict were not to occur at the same time. There must be at least 24 hours separating the trial and punishment. That's why cases, they said, could not be heard on the eve of the Sabbath or eve of a festival because the council could not reconvene in the next 24 hours. Also, the vote for the death penalty, they said themselves, was to be taken individually, starting from the youngest and working up to the eldest. That way the elders could not sway the opinion of the young ones. This didn't happen. The religious leaders quickly condemned Jesus, breaking another one of their laws. Mark 14, 64, they said, it says, they all condemned him to death. A unanimous decision. Again, they broke their own law. Remember I said a unanimous decision for guilt actually showed innocence because they themselves had declared it was impossible even for 23 to be all in agreement unless there had been scheming and plotting among themselves. It was illegal to announce the death penalty on the same day as the trial. Some of those present punched Jesus with their fists. Others slapped him in the face with an open hand and others spat in his face saying, Prophesy to us, you Messiah, who is it that struck you? To hit someone in the face or to hit someone with a fist was punishable by a fine of four denarii, that's four days work. To slap someone in the face with an open hand was punishable with a fine of 200 denarii. And a spit in somebody's face was punishable with a fine of 400 denarii. That's more than a year's worth of work. And yet it seems none were charged and fined. Where was the justice? The second character in this passage is, of course, Peter. And it was during this stage of Jesus' trial 
that Peter denied Jesus three times. The other disciples had gone their own separate ways, but Peter and John had followed Jesus to see what would occur, what would happen to him. John was a close friend of the high priest. He knew the name of the servant of the high priest who Peter had cut off his ear just a short time before. The relationship with the families of the high priest meant that John could gain access into that courtyard of the high priest where the trial was being conducted and Peter could accompany him. John chapter 18 verse 16 tells us that John was in the courtyard and he looked out and there was Peter on the outer and so John went to the woman who was guarding the door and asked her to let Peter in. Now the high priest must have been a wealthy man. In his courtyard he's got at least 23 of his own council, he's got soldiers and officers and he's got at least... The two disciples here. On three occasions, Peter was accused of being a disciple of Jesus and on each occasion, the intensity of his denial increases. There was a courtyard, a group in the courtyard with Peter and John. It was a cold night. They were warming themselves by the fire. And the first came from a maid who said to Peter while he was in the courtyard... You, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. Peter denied it. No, no, I wasn't. A rooster crowed, cock crowed. It was midnight. Then another maid came up to him while he was sitting in the porch and accused him of being with Jesus. But Peter denied this also, this time with an oath. He did not know Jesus and he had not been one of his disciples. Luke 22:59 says an hour passed and this time a few people accused Peter of being a disciple of Jesus because his accent being a Galilean was a giveaway. And Peter denied Jesus a third time either with even with more intensity this time he cursed and swore. Now scholars are in a little bit of debate about what Jesus actually said here. But in Mark chapter 14, verse 71, the verb that is used means that Peter swore and cursed at someone, Jesus. Peter swore and cursed Jesus. The cock crowed a second time. It was now three o'clock in the morning. At this point, The door to the home of Caiaphas was either open or opened and Jesus turned and he looked at Peter. For a moment they looked at each other. Peter remembered the words that Jesus had said to him. Before the cock crowed twice, Peter, you will deny me. Three times. Peter left weeping with repentance. It's always interested me, people who hear of Bible stories, who hear of the gospel, but they don't respond, they don't come to Christ, and in fact, they turn away from Jesus. 
few people that I've been able to ask, I thought, I wonder if there's one common denominator of why a person hears the truth and yet they say, no, I don't want to believe that and they turn away from it. And from what I'd be able to get from talking to people, it seems to be as if there's, there's one crucial point in their life. And for them it's like, no, I don't want to have anything to do with God anymore. Travel overseas sometimes with photography groups. And the photographer that leads our, our group, I was speaking to him on Norfolk Island. He was asking me, knows I'm the Baptist minister, Neil, why do you believe in what you believe? And then I asked him about his own life and he told me that as a family, he, he and his brothers and his mum and dad had gone to church their whole, his whole life until he got to a teenager and then he said, one day we just stopped going to church altogether. I said, why? Why did that happen? He said, my brother died. My family decided not to go back to church. David Attenborough, he says, he knows, he knows the truth, knows it in his head, right? but he says, no, he says, I, I can't believe there's a loving God because there's a boy in Africa who's 10 years of age who has a worm in his eye and this worm is digging away at his eye and this boy one day will be blind. How can a loving God allow that to happen? Of course, that's another whole different story, isn't it? Love and suffering. But not only that, the reverse can also be true. There can be people who go through really difficult times, really hard times, and their faith in Christ doesn't decrease but increases. It becomes stronger. I was in Barrel just a few weeks ago teaching at the Bible school there and I met up with my, uh, they used to be the property manager. And good old Phil, he's, been to India 30 times, India. He goes every year, twice. He's been going for 15 years and he left last week for his 30th trip. And he goes over and he works, his, works in orphanages and he's able to preach in certain places and he meets up with other Christian leaders. And I asked him, I said, is there anybody in particular that you want to meet up? This trip, this trip, he's there for the next 30 days. I laughed. He said, the guru. I said, who's the guru? And he told me this story. He said, the guru lives in North India. And for many years, 3,000 people would come and listen to the guru speak words of wisdom and they would give him money. And the guru ended up being quite wealthy until a year ago when the guru became a Christian. And now the 3,000 don't want to listen to him anymore. And he doesn't have any income. And he's had to move out of his house and now he lives in poverty. And Phil wants to meet up with the guru. And then Phil said this, the exciting thing is this, Neil. The guru is best friends with the Prime Minister of India. And he's hoping soon to be able to share his faith with him. Let us, let us be counted amongst those who, as time goes on, our faith doesn't decrease in Christ, but our faith becomes even stronger. We pray together. Father, over this weekend, as 
each of us will be reflecting on your, the death of your son and, of course, Sunday, the great news, the resurrection of your Sunday. Lord, it, it seems to be as if we're, we're viewing from afar. We, we, we read these stories, but we do our best to imagine and think what was happening. But what cannot be denied, Lord, is that you went through all of this because of your love for each one of us. Your suffering and your death, the one thing that drove you to the cross, the joy that was set before you, is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So, Lord, may... May we never be ashamed of you. May we never be ashamed that we have put our faith in you. And when the trials of life come our way, may we not be those who turn from you, but turn to you in an even greater measure. We ask and pray this, Jesus, in your name.